You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. There's a lot going on, so I'm going to hit a few points at the top of this week's show. First up, I am on Team Serena. Batting second, or bat-shitting second, some of my fellow queers are taking to the internet. The internet, bringing out the best in all of us since 1990. Some of my fellow queers are taking to the internet to angrily call out straight people, aka cishet people, who use the term partner in reference to their spouses. Can we not with this? Can we just fucking not? I'm old enough to remember when straight people used to tell gays and lesbians that we couldn't use husband and wife. They also used to tell us that whatever it was we felt for each other, we were not allowed to use the word love to describe it. One of the very first books I read about sex when I was a teenager, everything you ever wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask, said that gay men were incapable of love and that a gay relationship was a sick codependency, a shared delusion, but not love, never love. Love only existed in opposite-sex relationships, never in same-sex relationships. It was bullshit when they tried to tell us what words we weren't allowed to use when we spoke of the most important people in our lives, and it was ineffective bullshit. We called it love over their objections. And you know what? Telling straight people what words they can't use is also bullshit. And our attempts to dictate to cishets to tell them what words they can and cannot use when they're talking about the most important people in their lives are no likelier to be effective than their attempts to dictate to us were. So can we please just not waste any more time than I've already wasted myself on this bullshit? And speaking of bullshit, the Democrats put up a good fight last week during Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings. Kavanaugh perjured himself during those hearings. He lied to the Senate five times last week, and he lied to the Senate during his confirmation hearings back when he first joined the federal bench a decade and a half ago. And Democrats have the receipts. And while Kavanaugh is almost certainly going to be confirmed, when Democrats take Congress, they'll be able to impeach this lying sack of shit. Same rules as impeaching a president, majority vote in the House, to impeach two-thirds majority in the Senate to convict and remove. A high bar, yes, but not an impossible one. And while we're all worried about the fate of Roe v. Wade if Kavanaugh is confirmed, which is certain to be overturned once Kavanaugh is on the court, and Obergefell, the ruling that legalized same-sex marriage, which is almost certain to be overturned if Kavanaugh is confirmed, those hearings last week made it clear that we also need to be worried about the Griswold decision. In 1961, Estelle Griswold opened a birth control clinic in New Haven, Connecticut, and was promptly arrested for dispensing contraceptives to a married couple. She was convicted, fined 100 bucks, appealed her conviction all the way to the Supreme Court, and in 1965, seven of nine justices struck down Connecticut's law against selling birth control. Americans, the court ruled, had a fundamental right to privacy, and the government had no place bursting into your bedroom to pull the condom off your dick. That was essentially the ruling. The Griswold decision, which found for the first time a right to privacy in the U.S. Constitution, was crucial to later Supreme Court rulings overturning anti-sodomy laws, 
which paved the way for Obergefell and other important gay rights rulings. And again, it is the reason the cops can't burst into your bedroom or your bathroom and slap the birth control pills out of your mouth. And do you know what access to contraception does? It drives down the abortion rate. Increased access to contraception thanks to Obamacare is the chief reason the abortion rate in the United States right now is at its lowest level since abortion was legalized in 1973. If social conservatives really cared about preventing abortion, they would back access to contraception. But they don't really care about preventing abortion. They care about controlling women's bodies and punishing people for, as Rick Santorum famously put it, doing things in the sexual realm counter to how things are supposed to be. When Brett Kavanaugh was asked about contraception during his confirmation hearings last week, he referred to them, to birth control, as abortion-inducing drugs, which is not what contraceptives are and not what contraceptives do. They are not abortifacants. But if you want to ban contraceptives, which many on the right want to do, redefining contraceptives as abortifacants and then banning abortion? Yeah, that's one way to do it. Does this make you mad? It makes me mad. But let's not just get mad. Let's do something. And here's something we can do. Susan Collins, the allegedly pro-choice Republican senator from Maine, has made it clear that she intends to vote to approve Brett Kavanaugh and put his ass on the Supreme Court. Pro-choice activists in Maine hit on a brilliant strategy. They are raising money right now at crowdpack.com for a challenger to Collins. So far, 32,000 people have pledged to donate $900,000 to a challenger. If Collins votes no on Kavanaugh, you won't be charged. If she votes yes, your money will help finance a campaign to remove Collins from office and help build that Democratic majority we're going to need in the Senate to remove Brett Kavanaugh from the Supreme Court. So join me in getting out your credit card right now. Go to crowdpack.com and click on Senator Collins, be a hero, reject President Trump, Supreme Court, pick or else. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast and on the subscription magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Dr. Nick Caneo joins us to talk about bad, bad gay blood. Hi, Dan. Um, love, love your show. Big fan. Um, 20-something female living in the Pacific Northwest. Basically, I am interning at a company this whole summer, and I um, work with this guy that, for some reason, I can't really figure it out, but I'm extremely attracted to him. He's really quiet and he kind of has a hard time talking to me and he won't really acknowledge me and I don't know what it is about him but I just I just want to fuck him so badly and I'm a lot younger than him he's probably in his early 30s and I'm 20 and I'm an intern there so that complicates things a little bit but I just don't know where to begin with this process I don't know how to get his attention I don't know where to even start I'm not very confident when it comes to stuff like that. And I'm not good at putting myself out there, but I want to get to know this guy. I want to be friends with him at the very least, but I would also like definitely appreciate anything more. So um, any advice you have would be great. It's possible that he isn't speaking to you or acknowledging you because he isn't interested in you. Also possible he isn't speaking to you or acknowledging you because he is interested in you and doesn't want to be that guy. 
at his company. He doesn't want to get the reputation of being the kind of guy who preys on the summer interns who are 15 years his junior. I would advise you to look at your internship agreement, figure out when it expires, probably soon, probably the next couple of weeks. And then on your way out the door, when you're no longer an intern, when you're no longer figuratively in the employment sense under this guy in the hierarchy at this business, to approach him and say, I always wish I could have gotten to know you better while I was here. Here's my phone number. Here's my email. Let's grab a drink sometime. Now that I am no longer an intern at the company where you work and no one here has to know about it because it won't be happening here under everyone's noses. And then if you hear from him, he was interested in you, but not interested in being that guy who preys on interns or having that reputation. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a woman in my early 30s calling from the East Coast. I've been with my partner for 11 years, married seven, and I'm looking for some guidance on the use of marijuana. I do not presently have an interest in smoking and generally have no problem with adults using marijuana recreationally and am in support of its legalization. My partner is a frequent smoker and vapor, and I'm concerned about the amount used. Since I don't have any real experience, I have a hard time determining if his use is too much or if it seems that way because my personal baseline usage is none. He tends to take a hit or use his vape pen several times per day, sometimes in the morning when he wakes up, multiple times in the evening during the week, and on weekends all throughout the day. His preference for marijuana has increased over time, and he didn't smoke any in the first several years of our relationship. I don't know when recreational use becomes more of a habit, which could potentially be suggestive of some kind of addiction. To counter, my partner says that the chance of addiction to marijuana is very low. He's not missing out on work or sitting around doing nothing, but I am concerned that he seems to rely on marijuana as his primary form of stress relief. I'm a fan of a balanced life and myself drink alcohol recreationally, while also prioritizing other activities like working out, reading, friends, etc. Without seeing a balance on his end, I think I have a heightened concern about his use. Related, I'm not a huge fan of the smoke smell on a regular basis or the coughing that's sometimes associated with his smoking. In fact, I'm pretty turned off by it. I purposefully didn't date cigarette smokers years ago as I'm not a fan of the associated smells and behaviors. My partner's behavior is now seemingly somewhat similar at times. I've brought up my concerns in the past that he seems to perceive me as trying to control him. I admit that I'm probably not always great at bringing up my concerns as I tend towards the anxious side. I also think he's somewhat defensive of his use. I'm not necessarily saying that I want him to eliminate all marijuana. My thinking is that if I was using anything with the same regularity, he would notice and bring it to my attention out of love and concern. What are your thoughts, Dan? You frequently discuss the benefits of marijuana. I think I need some help sorting out my comfort with the frequency of usage or identifying if my perception is unfair and figuring out a boundary about smell and behavior. Thanks, Dan. Let's say your boyfriend is self-medicating with pot. Let's say your boyfriend was instead self-medicating or with the doctor's prescription medicating himself with antidepressants. The side effects of antidepressants, nausea, increased appetite and weight gain, loss of sexual desire and other sexual problems, including erectile dysfunction and decreased orgasm, fatigue and drowsiness, insomnia, dry mouth, blurred vision, constipation, dizziness, agitation, irritability, and anxiety. And yet if your boyfriend needed to take an antidepressant once a day to function, you wouldn't argue with him about that. Well, there are lots of people out there who self-medicate with pot, who need to take a couple of hits off a vape pen a few times a day to function. And it improves the quality of their life. On the other hand, it is possible to abuse anything, including pot. Annie Lowry has a big story up at The Atlantic this week. America's invisible pot addicts, more and more Americans are reporting near constant cannabis use as a legalization 
forges ahead. And there are people quoted in this article who aren't medical experts, who aren't scolds, who aren't doctors, but are themselves daily users of pot who regard their pot consumption as problematic. And yet I personally know many people who are daily users of pot, who don't struggle with lethargy, who aren't losing jobs and homes, and it's not a problem. In fact, again, like a daily antidepressant, it makes it possible for them to function. Where does your boyfriend fall on this spectrum? Is it a problem? Is the pot having a negative impact on his relationship? Start there. Don't start with, you'd rather not be with somebody who smokes pot. Don't start with the smell of the smoke. Start with the effect pot is having on him. It's possible it's having no bad effects on him. He could be a daily high-functioning user. And it's also possible that it has many benefits, like a daily antidepressant does for people who require antidepressants. Listen to him. Your objections to smoke, I am right there with you. I would never date a smoker. I wouldn't want to live in a house filled with pot smoke. Vape pens, edibles, tinctures. For anybody who wants the benefits of pot without all the stinky-ass smoke, you have options. Your boyfriend has options. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old female, this straight, and I'm having a problem with my boyfriend. I guess we're trying to work things out, but I'm having a huge issue sexually because we've been together for a while and there was a lot of rejection and he was watching porn instead of sleeping with me and he never physically cheated on me, but he was definitely entertaining other women from his past. And I just have this attitude about porn now where I just... I just feel really upset when I think about it um, and think about him watching it because it just, like, it hurt so much for all that time to feel so inferior to these other women. And I just, I don't know what to do about that because I, I've never had a problem with it. It's not something I ever really enjoyed, but I've always been pretty open at the beginning of my relationship that, with him and with previous boyfriends that I'm fine with porn. I, as long as everything else is fine, like as long as it's not a problem, but now it's a problem and I don't want to try to control him and tell him not to watch it. Cause I know that doesn't work, but he also has a problem when we do sleep together with finishing. He never does. You know, he can get it up, but he can't finish. And he won't admit that he has a problem. And I don't know that he has a problem because I'm not a professional. And I just don't really know what to do. He's really defensive. It's clearly he's ashamed. And I, I, it's just he's a hard person to talk to. And we have so many other problems that it's just difficult. His problem, your boyfriend's problem, with finishing, and by finishing you mean coming, climaxing when you two do have sex, it's possible that has no relationship to his porn consumption or anything else. Antidepressants, as I mentioned earlier on the show, can make it harder for people to climax, harder for them to finish. I would ask if your boyfriend's on antidepressants. Could be a side effect. Also, some people have difficulty finishing. Some guys need to use their own right hand, not because they're addicted to masturbation, not because porn ruined them, but because they require, maybe they had a death grip syndrome and they're never going to get past it. They require a few strokes. They need to finish themselves off. But guys who are with partners who regard him coming as a referendum on their attractiveness or their 
skills in bed often are too inhibited to do that. A guy who needs to stroke himself there the last few strokes, who pulls out and does that and gets yelled at, or there are tears and fights and recriminations, <laughs> would probably prefer just not to finish rather than risk another meltdown or fight about it. So you need to set the porn to one side. If you want to have a conversation with him about climaxing, clearly when he sits in front of the computer with his own right hand, he can make himself come. Does he need to use his own right hand when you guys have sex? Not for all the pleasure and all the stimulation and all the arousal. You're providing that. But the last little bit to get him over the falls, if that's what he needs, he should do that. Just like if what you needed to get you there at the end was a vibrator incorporated into the sex, you are right to that. And you shouldn't be shamed for needing that. And a guy shouldn't make you feel terrible about needing that. If he needs to pull out and stroke to get himself to the point of orgasmic inevitability there at the end, he shouldn't be shamed about that either. That's just the way his dick works. That said, setting aside his problems finishing, setting aside porn, maybe you need to get the fuck out of this relationship. You mention other problems that you don't go into and just from the tone of your voice, you sound exhausted. You sound done. You sound miserable. You're 26 years old. You've had other boyfriends. You can get other boyfriends. It's not him or no one. And if it's not working, if the relationship isn't working, if it's not providing you with more joy than it is stress, then it might be time to pull the plug and find a guy where sex isn't so fraught as a result of his neglect of you for however many years this guy neglected you. And maybe with a new guy, you can tap back into sexual pleasure, sexual joy, porn won't seem so problematic. And then you won't have this tone in your voice anymore of misery and resignation. And maybe I'm misreading that or attaching too much importance to it. People call me when they're distressed, maybe provides you with joy. Most of the time you called me at an unhappy moment. That's clear. But if all your moments with this guy are unhappy, at a certain point you have to stop working on something that isn't working. Ask yourself, take the large view, zoom out. Is this working? Does it give you joy? Do you want, you're 26 years old, five more decades with him? If the answer is no, stop working on this. Stop working on the porn problem, the finishing problem, all the other problems, and go. Go get a new guy with some exciting new problems. Hey, Dan. I am a 28-year-old female um, living on the West Coast. I have a question for you about relationships, um, but not romantic relationships, more friendships. I'm wondering if you could help me just kind of parse out some good ways to meet people these days. I know it sounds like a funny question. I just moved from the East Coast out West. I actually moved to your neck of the woods, which is part of the reason I'm calling. I um, just moved to Seattle and I moved here with my boyfriend, though he is off working probably half the time and I am working remotely. So the majority of the people that I've been friends with over the last 10 years or so have been people that I've met through work, always become really good friends with them and then maybe meet people from their networks and so on. So being out in a new city and not necessarily always having my boyfriend to go out and do things with and kind of meet people while having someone that I know nearby, I really don't have a good way or a way that I'm familiar with to meet people my own age. And I was wondering 
if you had suggestions, especially knowing Seattle, but in general, about just kind of good ways to meet people in, you know, various cities, but especially in the one that you're so familiar with. Welcome to Seattle. Seattle has many, many what they call co-working spaces where people basically share an office. It's a little bit more like a cafe. There's a whole bunch of them right around my office, and I sometimes meet up with people who work there to, to work on a project, to interview them or be interviewed by them. And I would encourage you to not be isolated, to spend the money, to join one of these co-working spaces. And they won't be your colleagues. They're not your co-workers, but they will be your co-working space workers. And you will encounter the same people. You will be a part of their routine and their pattern. And then those sorts of work friendships can emerge for you, even you solo laptop warriors. So get thee to a co-working space. Go. It'll be worth the investment. Also, lots of cafes where you can work. Go to the same places at roughly the same time, and you will see a lot of the same people at roughly the same time working. And you can get to know them. You can say hi. You can start with the nod and then work up to the chit-chat. Maybe make a friend. Also, go make yourself useful. Volunteering is a cliche. I remember reading Ann Landers' columns when I was 10 years old where people would tell her that they were lonely and they needed to make new friends in a new city and she would tell them to go do some volunteer work. The American Lung Association or, or the ASPCA, the American Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And you'll meet people who care about the same shit that you care about and you'll be thrown together, working together as volunteers on projects which will give you a reason to chit chat and get to know someone and figure out whether that's somebody you want to see outside of that volunteer gig. So co-working spaces, cafes, volunteer. Welcome to Seattle. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 27-year-old female living on the West Coast, and I am struggling with feeling like I have to have an open relationship based on my past history. So the place I'm at now is that I just met someone that I really, really like, we are falling in love and it's going really well, but I know based on my history that I tend to get lots of crushes on people and want to sleep with people and like enjoy myself. And I also have like a history of abandonment trauma from my parents, which makes it hard for me to be in open relationships. So I've read that it is better to start a relationship open rather than become open after habits and patterns have formed. And so I'm just feeling a lot of pressure to do something that feels really scary to me because it feels inevitable that if we aren't open, one of us is going to cheat on the other or I will somehow be abandoned in some way. Not to torment you, but it is possible for people in an open relationship to cheat on each other. As Esther Perel says, betrayal in a relationship comes in many forms, contempt, neglect, indifference, violence. Sexual betrayal is only one way to hurt a partner. Sexual betrayal, however, is possible in an open relationship. All open relationships are different, but all open relationships have rules that both parties have agreed to that make it possible for them to trust each other and for the open relationship to function. And you can have an open relationship and your partner can break the rules and cheat and hurt you. It's also possible for a partner to honor all of the rules and still hurt you. Hurt is always possible. So openness from the start in this new relationship that you're thinking about getting into isn't going to protect you from betrayal and it's not going to protect you from cheating or being cheated on. Honesty, good communication, 
and the trust that grows out of honesty and good communication and a good track record, that can protect you from being cheated on. Even then, you can be with somebody for 50, 60 years and they may screw up and cheat once or twice. You may screw up or cheat once or twice. That means you were pretty good at being monogamous if it's a monogamous relationship or faithful if it's an open relationship and you're honoring your rules. There are some people out there who argue that an open relationship should be open from the start or it can be open from the start. There are others who argue that it's good for there to be a, a time when the relationship is exclusive to establish good communication, trust, something of a track record to demonstrate to each other that you can be trusted, to honor the rules when you do open the relationship. And honestly, I've seen both work. Terry and I were together for four years before we opened our relationship. I think those four years where we were exclusive were really important to creating the foundation that allowed us to be together for another 20 years in an open relationship that's been successful. But I know people who are open from the start, who have been together as long as Terry and I have been together. So individual results, individual preferences may vary. I guess what I'm trying to tell you is there's just, there's not one program, not one thing you can do that can cheat proof your relationship. There's a whole industry out there of magazine articles targeted at women primarily packed with advice about infidelity proofing your relationship. And there is no fail proof way to infidelity proof or cheat proof your relationship, whether it's open or closed. There's always going to be risk. You can always screw up. Your partner can always screw up. If you screw up, you would like to be forgiven. If your partner screws up, maybe you can find it in yourself to forgive them. Just go date this boy. Go be with this boy. Talk to each other about what you want right now, what works for you right now, and then continue to have that conversation and continue to make whatever you're doing, closed or open, an opt-in ongoing conversation over the weeks, over the months, over the years, however long you're together. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 22-year-old gay male uh, living in the on the East Coast, and I'm in this weird, like, fuck buddy relationship with this guy who like I met like in November and like we when we hang out like it's cool like the sex is cool like I like who he is and we get along well but for like I don't know beginning of this year he doesn't respond to my text messages not even quickly just whenever I send him a text message it'll probably be maybe like three or four days before I get a response you know, and sometimes he doesn't even respond to ones that I send on Grinder, even though he like checks Grinder often frequently. And it's not like I text message him every day. I may send him like a message uh, like a day after we fucked. You know, to say hi, how are you? You know, not get a response from that. Two days later, I'm thinking, okay, well maybe he didn't see it. And then I send another one, maybe the same one, or like question mark. I don't think I'm demanding much. I really just want like a one word response, a yes, a no, a maybe, a sometimes, a later. Uh, and I've told him about this and still like I am being ignored. I'm not sure I'm being ignored. I may possibly be being ignored, but I don't know because he's not letting me know. I feel like you've touched on this before on your show, but like if you could impart some wisdom on a young gay boy, like that would really help, especially when, you know, dealing with people who have busy schedules and forget about you, you know, except for when they want to fuck. He's only interested in the benefits, not the friendship. You, on the other hand, are interested in the benefits and the friendship. Now that you know 
that he isn't interested in being your friend and treating you the way you would like to be treated by a sex partner, even a casual sex partner, stop wasting your time on him. Stop texting him. Stop pursuing him. Stop sending him messages on Grindr or anywhere else. Particularly don't send a couple of days after you've sent him a message, the solo question mark message, because it's not going to turn him into a different person. It's not going to make him more considerate. It's not going to make him feel about you the way you feel about him or the way you feel about this, that it should be a friendship with benefits, not just a booty call thing. And he's not suddenly going to start treating you the way you would like to be treated. Since you're getting on Grinder, you know that he is not the only other gay guy out there, roughly your age or your type, that might be interested in you or you might be interested in. The time and energy that you are wasting on this guy, you need to invest in pursuing friendships with benefits with other guys who are interested in you, not just for the sex and not just when they're horny, but interested in you as a person when your pants are on and their pants are on. Stop wasting your time on this guy. He's blowing you off. Reciprocate. Blow him off too. Hi, Sam. So I have a bit of an odd situation. I'm a 24-year-old female living in the Midwest. So I met this guy at a bar this weekend with my best friend, and he was with a friend of his. So it's two guys that we met, me and my best friend. Anyways, so we ended up spending the whole night with them. And we, from the bars, we go back to my place, we have a drink and we realize that they don't have a way home. It's super convenient. So we say, Hey, just crash, spend the night. I end up spending the night in the same bed as one of the guys. He, and I just made out. It's nothing crazy, whatever. My parents though, were with us in the same vicinity. So my mom did what most parents do and asked what his last name was. And she Googled him. And today I get a text from her of a screenshot from what appears to be like a cheating website, I guess where he posts cheaters and it has accusations of him being an offender. So I don't really have anything to lose. So I text him because him and I have continued to text and said, I don't know what this is, but if it's true, if it's not, you should know about it. Good luck, whatever. So he ends up telling me that, quickly responds that it's a stalker that he's had, which to me is a a very uh, aggressive lie if you're going to lie. And he also said it so quickly. So he goes on to like tell the story about this person has been doing this to him for years and he had to talk to his lawyer and da, 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 da. And I don't know. It's just, I weirdly believe what he's saying it was just posted on this cheating site. And if, if he did the offense that was the accusation made, then um, there'd be a police report, which there wasn't. So I don't know. He says that it's not true. Do I keep texting him? Uh, my gut tells me there's nothing wrong with him. We spent 20 hours together, which I mean, I don't know. It's not that long, but I never got the vibe. My mom met him, never got the vibe. So let me know what you think, I guess. I don't know. This is a weird one. You say you hung out with him for 20 hours and you didn't get the vibe that he was the cheating, sexual, offending type. And your mother hung out with him for a while and she didn't get that vibe either. And that's a point in his favor, but it's not proof that he hasn't cheated. It's not proof that he isn't a sex offender somehow. Because if people who cheated habitually, serially, people who were uh, abusers, 
or users or rapists gave off a super creepy intense vibe, no one would get close enough to them to ever be cheated on or abused. A lot of abusers, a lot of cheaters, habitual serial cheaters, are charismatic folks that people are attracted to. And as such, people want to give them the benefit of the doubt. You have doubts about this guy because of what you read on that website. And your doubts are legitimate. And you should weigh them against the guy that you've gotten to know even briefly. And if you want to continue to see him, you should continue to see him. Because just as some abusers and habitual serial cheaters... I'm qualifying, of course, cheater with habitual and serial because... Sometimes people cheat with grounds and the person they cheated on may feel like they are the victim and take to one of these websites. But if you get into their story, if you find out what was actually happening in the relationship at the time, you may find that your sympathies shift from the person who was cheated on, the white hat, to the person who cheated, the black hat. Once you know the story, sex offending? Committing a sex crime? Yeah, there should be some sort of record out there if indeed he was prosecuted and some people commit sex offenses and sex crimes and they're never prosecuted police reports are never filed and they get away with it however all that said there are malicious motherfuckers in the world people lie women can be malicious motherfucking liars and vindictive about their exes and put shit up on the internet about someone that isn't fucking true and the only way for you to figure out who this guy is is to give him the benefit of the doubt. Now, when you give someone the benefit of the doubt, you don't set aside the doubt. You still have the doubt. Giving someone the benefit of the doubt, getting to know them a little better, doesn't erase the doubt. It doesn't resolve the doubt. Only time and experience and really getting to know that person better can resolve the doubt with some finality. But if you liked the guy, you got a good vibe. Again, not proof. He's not an asshole. A lot of assholes give off really positive, strong, good vibes. And you want to risk it despite what you found on the internet. Not everything on the internet is true and there are malicious motherfuckers out there in the world. I think you should continue to get to know him. With your eyes open, of course, as they should be in any new relationship, looking out for those red flags. And if you start spotting red flags that undermine his credibility or would seem to confirm these things that you found on the internet, then pull the plug. Stop seeing the guy. Hey, Dan. I am a 20-something cis woman living in the Midwest. I am dating an older, awesome man, and we have recently started delving into the world of swinging, specifically and primarily him watching me with other men. And, you know, things were going really well. The first couple of people that we met, he told me that he had met at his place of work, which is a restaurant in the town that we live in, uh, which I, at the time, thought was a little bit strange. I don't know how you organically you know, meet someone at um, your work and start to have that conversation with them. Uh, but I kind of put it out of my mind. That was until um, a few days ago, we are doing an online project together and he had set up um, an email address for us uh, that he was primarily using that I had access to. And I went in to find a message in our search folder and noticed that there were all sorts of messages in there corresponding with these people over Craigslist via the missed connection sections, which I also didn't even know was a thing. But, you know, it became pretty obvious that he didn't meet these people at his place of work. He met them online. He was sending photos of me to them without my consent. Um, and I guess I'm just kind of reeling from it. I did confront him about it. He became super defensive and angry and, you know, kept saying, well, why does it matter how I met them? Um, you know, I was doing this for us and for our pleasure, but it just feels like a huge invasion of my privacy. And it's not something that I'm sure I'm 
going to be able to get over. So I'm I'm trying because I do love him in every other way. He's been very wonderful, but uh, I'm just wondering how I get past this and um, how I can try to learn to trust him again or, you know, if I need to just walk away from it altogether. It feels like a huge invasion of your privacy because it was a huge invasion of your privacy. Also, a violation of your trust, a violation of basic tenets of sexual consent. He lied to you about where he found these people and how he found these people and obtained your consent to fuck these people in front of him under false pretenses. He obviously doesn't regard you as a human being. He regards you as some sort of fuck doll who performs for him that he can manipulate and lie to and expose online because you're his property. How do you get past this? You don't get past this. You dump the motherfucker, not already, instantly. You dump the motherfucker at that moment. This relationship is over. You cannot trust someone who would violate your privacy, your trust, consent in this way. And when you catch someone violating your trust, your privacy, your consent, as this man has violated yours, and he reacts with anger, he blows up at you as if you did something wrong? Yeah, no. That's the end of the affair. This is over. You have got to get away from this person. If you allow him to get away with treating you like this, if you work to get past it, he will treat you in worse ways. He doesn't see you as a human being and a partner in this relationship. I don't think he loves you. I think you love the person that you believed him to be before this discovery revealed to you the person that he is. And you need to think about the person that he is. And stop thinking about the person he misled you to believe that he was. And if you think for five minutes about the person that you now know him to be, you won't need me to tell you to end this relationship. You will know that you must, that you have to, for your own safety, emotionally, sexually, end this relationship. Now. Hi, Dan. I was just wondering, um, what was your, what is your opinion on blood donation from queer people? I was recently turned away from giving blood because um, their reasoning was that um, in the past three months, I have had protected sex with a man who has at some point in his life had sex with a man. And they said, even if it was 20 years ago, because he's had sex with a man, I am thereby not allowed to give blood. Um, and I thought this was very homophobic and closed-minded and point of view. So I've had now a half an hour long conversation with the blood people about the reasoning why all of this is. And they're basically telling me that it's because statistically this group of people gay men is more likely to have infections and they just want their blood to be the safest possible. Is this just one of those things that you have to accept or is this bullshit? Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Nick Cuneo, resident physician in the Harvard, Brigham and Women's and Boston's Children's Combined Program in Medicine and Pediatrics. Also the author of an op-ed recently in the LA Times titled, Rules for Gay Blood Donors Are Based on Outdated Fear, Not Science. Hey, Dr. Cuneo, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So before we get to what is the gay blood ban and how long has it 
been in force and why. Can you just tell me if I'm a bad gay? You're a gay, I'm a gay. Am I a bad gay that I've never been particularly exercised about the gay blood ban? It's not something I've written about. It's not something I've really talked about much. Am I a bad gay? You're not a bad gay. Uh, I think you're in the majority of, of folks who um, don't really think about this too often. I mean, the majority of my uh, colleagues who are physicians are actually you know, unaware or were unaware of this before I wrote the you know, editorial for the LA Times. They, um, um, a ton of them actually expressed surprise that this was still in existence. So I, I don't think you, you know, you're uh, particularly outnumbered uh, <laughs> by, by folks who, who feel passionately about this. But this, for somebody who is interested in donating, who is gay and um, who knows the risks involved, I think it's been sort of a, a longstanding annoyance and sort of injustice that we, we haven't really raised enough of a fuss about. Okay, so backing way the fuck up for people who aren't familiar with the gay blood ban at all. I'm, I'm familiar with it. I, I followed it. I've just never been exercised enough about it to write about it or really talk about it. What is it? When was it put into force? And what's wrong with it? Yeah, so this came about back uh, in the 80s when, when the epidemic was first really coming out and, and people were getting HIV from blood donations because we didn't have the technology to adequately screen for the virus. Um, and it was based on the best available information at that time um, that gay men were at higher risk of HIV. Uh, and, and it's kind of been sustained over the years despite a lot of advances in our understanding of how HIV is transmitted and, uh, and advances in the technology that we have to screen for it um, directly in the blood. So. Mm. You know, at, at the beginning, it was initially a lifelong ban for all men who have sex with men uh, or who have had any sexual contact with a man, you know, in their lifetime. Um, and then uh, this sort of uh, became less relevant um, once we had the advent of uh, technology that tested directly for the virus in blood itself. Let, let's pause here mm -hmm. for a second, because I just want to acknowledge that at the beginning of the HIV AIDS epidemic, and I was there at the beginning of the HIV AIDS epidemic, I just come out. Yeah. And people were getting HIV from blood transfusions because, as, as you said, there wasn't uh, tests that could screen for effectively uh, the presence of HIV. And, and hundreds of thousands of people, including most famously Ryan White, for whom the Ryan White Care Act is named, got HIV from blood transfusions, including tons of thousands of children. And so it wasn't, when it was first enacted, it wasn't just about prejudice. And it, it was legitimate, would you say? It was a blunt force object. For, for sure. Yeah, it was a blunt force sort of tool based on the best information we had um, uh, to deal with a really terrible problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that time, as you said, there were, there were thousands of, of folks who did contract HIV from blood transfusions and uh, things looked very different. So why is it still in force now? If we have these tools to screen... Is it just prejudice that allows this to roll forward in its current state? I do, I do know that it has been tweaked. It used to be a lifelong ban. If you've ever had sex with a man, you can't give blood. Now, if it's, you've had sex with a man in the last 12 months, the last year, you can't give blood. Is that right? Indeed. And I, I would say that the, the, it's true. And the caller, um, you know, whatever she heard from the center where she was going, and I'm not sure if it was in the United States or elsewhere, but uh, it's not accurately reflecting the current rules, um, which, as you, as you mentioned, were changed at the beginning of 2015 mm -hmm. in response to congressional pressure. And not to, not to, to translate this into a colorful language that my, my listeners uh, come to this show for, like if you're, a, sure. if you're a straight guy and you go out this weekend and you have unprotected sex with 30 women and use drugs and you're on a crazy-ass risky bender, Monday morning you can go and give blood. And no one's going to say, 
you can't give blood because yeah, I mean, as long as you're not injecting drugs, um, yeah, no. If you have if you have an active herpes infection, if you have an active chlamydia infection, both sort of markers of recent high risk sexual activity. Uh, if you're a straight man, um, if you had unprotected sex, you know, within the last week, uh, you can still give blood, which I think you know is telling. You but, know, it doesn't but, but if you're a being gay, an expert, right? But if you're a gay man and you're in a committed monogamous relationship and you're having sex only with one other person who's tested and you've tested and you're both negative, you can't give blood. You had sex this weekend with your long-term monogamous right. partner, just that guy, that what guy only. You walk in at the same time the straight guy who fucked 30 women this weekend did. He's got chlamydia and active infection. You've got no chlamydia, no active sexually transmitted infections at all. You can't give blood. That straight guy can. Exactly. And it doesn't take, you know, an expert in infectious disease to realize that that is absurd. And, you know, it reinforces this prejudice that gay men are diseased pariahs, that gay men are filthy, diseased animals. Right? It's, it's true. And it's also just it's applying a population uh, level uh, understanding of things to the um, to an individual, which, you know, is really sort of inappropriate, uh, in my opinion, and it's not really scientifically founded. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it shouldn't be the case. You know, we have better tools available to us right now uh, to be able to, um, to make that risk calculation. And, you know, other countries have, have been doing this for a while. Italy, for example, since, um, you know, more than a decade ago. So uh, switch to individual risk. I, I don't want to be Pollyanna about this, and I don't want to bullshit my listeners or anyone else. Gay men are at higher risk of sexually transmitted infections, and there's higher prevalence of all sexually transmitted infections among gay and bi men. That's just a fact. This is true. And, but this isn't about you mm-hmm. know, not allowing gay men to donate because they're at higher risk. This is about there are tools to screen blood to eliminate from the blood supply all tainted blood, wherever, exactly. wherever it comes from, gay men, bi men, straight men. And so just using this, are you gay or have you ever had sex with a man or had sex with a man recently as the, as a screener, when we now have the technology to more effectively screen blood is there's, there's no reason for that anymore. And the only justification, the only, the only reason it still exists is simple prejudice because it should be irrelevant that gay men are at higher risk and have higher prevalence for, of STIs generally, because it's not about that. It's about screening. Exactly. We can, I mean, we can pick up on HIV now within sort of nine to 14 days of exposure um, with near perfect sensitivity in the blood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can ask questions to, to much better understand an individual's level of risk. Uh, so it's really sort of an obsolete, not science-based algorithm that we're doing right now. But I, I guess this is where I wonder how bad a gay man I am. And maybe I've internalized too much HIV and disease shame back in the 80s when we were all reeling from this. But I've, you know, gotten into some arguments uh, with young gay people who were activists about the blood ban and that they're focusing their activism on the blood ban who would say to me rather indignantly, they're saying that I'm likelier to have a sexually transmitted infection than a straight guy. And I've looked at them and said, you are. Yeah, well, I think, you know, and that's again, that's sort of using the population level data mm-hmm. to make an assumption about an individual, which, you know, is, is one way of doing things, but I would say not the best sort of scientifically no, rigorous way of doing it. I'm things. not saying we should do it that way, 
But we can't get out there if we're going to fight the blood ban and argue that it's insulting or a lie to insinuate that gay and bi men are likelier or at higher risk of and likelier to have a sexually transmitted infection than a, a straight guy is because we are. We have to set that aside. We can't make that the argument. You're offending my dignity by suggesting I'm at higher risk for sexually transmitted infections. That's the stuff that kind of like rankles, you know, my bullshit detectors go off because we just are at higher risk for sexually transmitted infection because we tend to be more sexually active because men are pigs and straight men would do everything gay men do if straight men could, but they can't because women won't, but gay guys can. So the argument we make when we want to fight the blood ban shouldn't be, how dare you insinuate that I'm at higher risk because we are. The argument has to be, we have the tools now to screen all the blood wherever it came from effectively and then remove from the blood supply any blood that's problematic not just our blood and our blood isn't necessarily problematic that's right i mean i think that's that's part of it um and and the other part is that we do have ways of asking people what their behaviors are um to be able to make an individual decision on their risk so you know yes as as a group we are at higher risk and uh and i think that needs to be recognized and and not you know um, dismissed as a reason for concern, but there are ways to get around that. And, um, and we have the science now to be able to do that pretty confidently. And we have other countries that do it differently, um, you know, for comparison, and they've been able to show that they've been able to, to do individual risk assessments safely. So it really becomes something where it, it doesn't really seem justified uh, unless, you know, there's really just this, this stigma um, weighing in more than anything else. Dr. Nick Caneo, resident physician in the Harvard Brigham and Women's and Boston's Children's Combined Program in Medicine and Pediatrics. That is a mouthful. His recent op-ed, Rules for Gay Blood Donors, are based on outdated fear, not science. It's up right now at the Los Angeles Times. Dr. Caneo, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. It was really great chatting with you today. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Take care. Hi, Dan. First time, long time. I'm calling because uh, I was married for 18 years and together for 21, and I cheated you know, several times and now we're divorced, but, um, I found someone that I'm really in love with and I really care about her. All I can think about is her, but there's also this fear and th this fear of, of cheating, which I don't want to do. I really don't. And I just want to know how can I prevent that? You know, I, in my head, I figure I don't look at anyone else and I just focus on her. I should be fine. But, you know, Maybe I'm simplifying this. If I knew how to prevent cheating, do you know how rich I would be? Do you know how many people want that formula? Do you know how many bullshit books there are out there advising people on how to infidelity proof their relationships that don't fucking work because people just keep fucking cheating? It's almost as if it's a feature, not a bug of human sexuality and interpersonal relationships. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. You were in a relationship for 20, 21 years. You say you cheated a few times. I'd be interested to know when you cheated, why you cheated, what was going on in the relationship at the time you cheated. If you were together with somebody for 21 years and you were cheating on them, you know, a couple of weeks into the relationship or a year into the relationship or on your wedding night, habitually, consistently, serially cheating on someone, well, then you shouldn't make monogamous commitments. You're shitty at monogamy. And you should accept that a monogamous commitment is just something that you're eventually going to violate. And, you know, if you made a monogamous commitment and you break it, that's likely to blow up the relationship that you're in. 
So if you just can't keep it in your pants, you have options now. You can have an open relationship. You can have an open marriage. You can be with someone who's interested in swinging or three ways or whatever else. You can go out there and find yourself a partner who doesn't want a monogamous commitment from you any more than they want to make a monogamous commitment to you or anyone else. That is an option. That, that is one actually effective way to cheat proof or infidelity proof your relationship. Because if you are in an open relationship and you honor the rules that you two establish for outside sexual contact, even if you are fucking other people, you're not cheating. It's not infidelity. But if in your previous relationship, if in that 21-year relationship, you were successfully monogamous for 15 years, monogamy flawlessly executed, and then you tripped up, you say a few times, you cheated a few times, well, in my universe, as I've said 100,000 times on this show, if you're with somebody 50, 60 years and they only cheat on you once or twice, they were pretty good at monogamy. Making perfection the only standard for success when it comes to this, and this is really monogamy, is the only thing that humans attempt where perfection is the only standard for success, sets relationships and marriages up for failure because people are bad at this monogamy thing and it's hard. And so if you only cheated a handful of times in a two-decade and change relationship, maybe you should stop beating yourself up. Maybe you were better at monogamy than you think you were and perhaps capable in your next relationship of doing monogamy perfectly. Right now you say you're in love with this one. You don't want to have sex with anybody else. You don't even want to look at anybody else. I bet if I can get in a time machine and go back and find you at the beginning of your relationship with your ex-wife, you probably felt and said the same things about her if you weren't a serial adulterer, if you weren't a cheating piece of shit at the start of your relationship that you're saying now with this woman at the start of this relationship. So these feelings, as intense and sincere as they may be at this moment, they're not going to immunize you against temptation or, or screwing up or cheating. So the conversation I think you need to have with not me about it, you know, how to cheat-proof your relationship, but with the, your new love is an honest acknowledgement that in your past relationship you cheated and you don't feel good about that and it's not something that you want to do again, but it is something that happens in a lot of relationships. You're going to go into this new relationship with every intention never to cheat. And she, if she is making a monogamous commitment and wants one and is sincere and feels as strongly about you as you do about her, she's doing the same thing, going in with no intention to cheat. Cheating happens though. And it is better to have a conversation at this stage of the relationship when there's no desire to cheat, when you're not seven, eight, nine, ten years in and taking each other for granted or hit some weird plateau where you're not really communicating well and you're still together but drifting apart and you haven't righted the ship. Better now to have a conversation about if this happens, what then? If this happens, does that mean we have to divorce? If this happens, is it something that we can get past, learn from? Can we recommit? This is not an advance request for a hall pass or a get out of cheating jail free card. This is, what are we gonna do? If this thing that happens in so many relationships, happened in my past relationship, it's probably happened in other relationships she's been in. If this thing that happens, happens to us, can us survive? And if you have that conversation in advance, it's not going to assure you that if you cheat, the relationship will survive. But I think it makes it more likely that the relationship will survive. And this isn't a conversation, again, about getting an advanced, get out of cheating free card. This is a conversation between two adults who are in love, who have no desire to sleep with anyone else at this moment, where they commit to each other in a more profound way, where you commit to working through this thing, 
this asteroid that slams into so many relationships, if it slams into ours, if you do it or I do it, we're going to remember how we feel now. We're going to remember this conversation we're having now. And we're going to commit to trying to work past it, to save the relationship, prioritize the relationship. Life is long. The decades fly by. Shit happens. People cheat. People cheat on people they love. And what's more important, that we are together and we are us for the rest of our lives or that neither of us ever touch anyone else with our genitalia ever again for the rest of our lives. And I think the former is more important. I think us is more important. And I think that us is likelier to survive if the two people in that relationship have a conversation early about wanting the relationship to survive. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old female on the West Coast. I've been in two relationships before. With my first boyfriend, it was an awful relationship. He was older and really manipulative and very emotionally abusive. Uh, we didn't have sex because I was a virgin at the time and I was really holding back on having sex. We basically did everything but sex and I think he thought I eventually was going to lose my virginity to him. And when we broke up before losing my virginity to him, he actually harassed me a lot, vandalized my car, spread so many rumors about me. It was a really bad time in my life. And I took a lot of time to heal. I went to therapy. And then soon after, I met my current boyfriend, which I wasn't looking for a boyfriend. I was just looking to start having normal dating experiences. And then I I have had now sex with my current boyfriend, and I'm really happy and I could see myself marrying him, but a lot of people around me have doubts that this isn't going to last because, you know, it's not normal to only have one sex partner your whole life. I need to date more. I need to experience more. But the way I feel is that I have dated before, but it was such a terrible experience that maybe I don't really understand what's out there in the world. My experiences are limited, but I also have met plenty of guys around me and there's no one that really better than my boyfriend to me and I don't feel the need to date others but of course maybe if I'm single guys would present themselves differently to me and my desires would change but it almost feels weird that I'm forcing myself to think about dating others because others tell me that it's not normal to only have one sex partner your whole life and I'm basically being told that when I'm 40 I'm going to regret it and go crazy and I want to know what your honest opinion on that is am I going to regret this when I'm older boyfriend is a few years older than me and he's you know thinking about getting engaged and I feel like I don't want to waste his time and I should tell him if I'm having these doubts but I really feel like I'm not having the doubts it's the people around me having doubts I just want to know from your opinion if you think I could be happy for the rest of my life knowing I've just had one sex partner let me not to the potential marriage of true minds admit impediments you're 23 years old you've had one shitty, awful relationship with an asshole and good on you that you trusted your gut, that some part of you was saying, this is not a good guy. This is not the right guy. This is not the guy I want to lose my virginity, my PIV virginity to. And so no, not going there, not with him. I don't know if that was a consciously articulated thought at the time, but some part of you was like, this is not right for me. He is not right for me. And then he proved to you when you ended the relationship that you were right that 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 got that sense you had that he was a shitty person not somebody you could trust inside your body was borne out his behavior vindicated 
was true. He was a complete fucking asshole and you didn't let him all the way in and you got him the fuck out of your life. Good for you. And good for you for getting the therapy and the help that you needed in the wake of that traumatic relationship to heal. Well, now you're in a new relationship, but you're only 23 years old. So you can't have been in this new relationship for long. You feel intensely infatuated with this guy. You've, you've had sex with this guy. You lost your PIV virginity to this guy and you can see a future with this guy. That doesn't mean you have a future with this guy. You're in the early stages of a relationship. You may go the distance. He may be the one that you marry. It sounds like he's interested in committing to you and you guys may be together forever. And if you are happy and satisfied in this relationship, you didn't do love and sex and romance wrong by not running out and fucking 30 other guys before you settled on this guy. If he's the right guy and you feel good about him, don't listen to what everybody else is telling you. Just like you didn't listen to that shitty first boyfriend of yours when I'm sure he was telling you you owed him when you were still in the relationship that you should have PIV with him, that, you, that he deserved to take your virginity. You didn't listen to him. Don't listen to your dumb fucking friends about this. It may be true to their experience that sleeping with a bunch of people before they settled on one was the right choice for them, but sometimes this works out. There are people out there, happy, contented, not duggers, not sexually repressed people who met a person that they wanted to and could spend the rest of their life with happily without ever having sex with anybody else ever again. You could be one of those people. It's also possible that you could be with this guy for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and at some point, by mutual agreement, decide to open the relationship because that's what you both want. So committing to him now doesn't mean you won't ever have sex with anyone else ever again, ever, 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 except for this guy. Most people in open relationships, most straight couples on the organized swinging scene or even the disorganized internet-enabled swinger scene were monogamous, many for decades before they opened the relationship. So committing to this guy now doesn't preclude a sexual experience at some point in the future with somebody else, so long as that is something you negotiate with your then husband and it's something you both want to experiment with and try. That is possible for you. And you should have a conversation with this guy if it gets more serious and you move toward marriage and commitment, that monogamy is something that works for you both right now, it's what you want right now, but that's a conversation that you may want to revisit or he may want to revisit at some point in the future in the relationship. And that would allow then, if at some point you decide that you feel like you missed out and you do want to have sex with somebody else, to see what that feels like, to experience that, to reopen those negotiations with your then husband. And potentially then, if you want and he wants, to open the relationship and have those experiences that you didn't get to have because you committed young and committed to the first guy that you had PIV intercourse with. Congratulations on the new relationship. I hope everything works out for you. Hey, 27-year-old woman, frustrated, sexually frustrated woman. So this is a scenario my boyfriend and I are going through. Uh, he will initiate foreplay. He'll stick his hand in my pants or in my underwear, start kissing me or start going down on me. And it'll last a few seconds or maybe like three minutes. Um, I'll get turned on and then he pushes me away or rolls over and says, can we just go to sleep? Incredibly frustrating and it leads to fights. Um, I'm having a hard time reacting to this without anger. It's just making me fight more about sex with him, which is making sex happen less. There's something going on here and I just don't know what to do. What your boyfriend is doing, it's cruel. It's such an asshole move that he cranks you up, turns you on, fakes, head fakes, 
pretends to be initiating sex just to, to shut you down like this and, and frustrate you and upset you. And he does this knowing that it inevitably sparks a fight, which means that, of course, sex isn't the goal when he does this to you. The fight is the goal. The fight is what he wants to have. And it sure doesn't sound, I'm sure you would have mentioned if these fights led to great makeup sex, but that's not happening. It's just crank you up, turn you on, hand in the pants, get you wet, and shut you down and then fight and nothing, just the fight. The fight is the goal. And so I think that's a pretty clear signal that he wants out of this relationship. Even if he hasn't articulated that, his actions are screaming that. He's doing something that is generating conflict in your relationship. He's sabotaging not just the relationship, but your sexual connection and your feeling of trust and safety with your committed romantic and sexual partner. And why would someone do that? Why would someone sabotage their relationship by engineering conflict, sabotage their sexual connection to their romantic and intimate partner if they didn't want out, consciously or subconsciously, wanted out? I think he wants out and he's doing that asshole thing where he forces your hand. He makes you break up with him because he does not have the courage, the decency, the ova to break up with you himself. So he's going to be an asshole until you dump him. And then he gets to play the victim when you dump him. Do him a favor. Cast him in that role that he so desperately wants to play as the victim of this breakup. Dump the motherfucker already. Hey, Dan and the Tech Savvy Youth. 30-year-old bi woman here from New York calling to get your take on something that happened this weekend. Some background before I ask my question. I recently came out as bi to my partner of 10 years, and with his support, we've transitioned into an ethically non-monogamous relationship in which I could see other women on my own, as long as I disclose everything and remain open to the occasional threesome. He's been nothing but understanding and loving as I worked through all this, and I recently decided to introduce him to a woman that I've seen a handful of times. She is in what I thought was a similar open relationship and invited us to her birthday party to meet her husband this past weekend. We went, met her husband and her friends who just knew us as friends from their old neighborhood and generally had a really sexy time drinking and dancing at a rooftop bar. My fiance and this woman actually got along surprisingly well, but we got a really weird vibe from her husband. For example, when he asked for advice on being in a newly re open relationship, this guy told him that females are biologically predisposed to these sorts of things, and if he doesn't let her do it, she just gets crazy. All things considered, though, everything was going great until the end of the night when her friends left, and it was just the four of us and one other new acquaintance left. At that point, the my friend and her husband started arguing, and he threw his hat over the ledge of the rooftop bar and, I hope, pretended to throw himself over. Um, she pulled him down and they immediately left. My fiance and I were concerned for her safety. So we followed them down to the street at a distance. We watched them argue some more and he ended up shoving her, picking her up and literally throwing her into a giant pile of New York city garbage. And we ran over and separated them and made sure she was okay. She apologized profusely and told us he'd never done anything like this. My questions are, how, if at all, do I contact her again? And do we have any obligation to report this guy? We checked in with her the next day, and she assured us that she was okay, that this was atypical behavior from him, and this is no longer the first time, and that it had nothing to do with us being there. I had started developing NRE-type feelings for this woman, and I fully recognize that I don't really know anything about her or her marriage. However, if there is any abuse at home, I don't want her to feel like she doesn't have anywhere to turn, but my fiancé is worried for my safety if I do try to see her again. 
The whole incident left us pretty shaken, and we still get upset every time we think about it. Any insight on this would be helpful. This is an interesting ethical dilemma. What are your responsibilities? What are your obligations to someone that you're in a casual sexual relationship with when they're in a committed relationship with somebody else? And you realize that their marriage, the person that they're committed to, is abusive. What are your obligations? What are your responsibilities in that circumstance? And what are the risks you're running? This guy, in this case, the, this, the husband who picked up his wife and threw her into a pile of New York City garbage, which is just so insanely degrading, but also risky. You never know what sharp objects are inside a plastic bag. She could have been impaled on that pile of garbage. You're at risk too. If he's this volatile, you're at risk too. And, and you have a right to pull away from this relationship to protect yourself and protect your marriage. The thing that the guy said to your husband in the bar were so odd that women are biologically predisposed to this sort of thing. We're all biologically predisposed to this sort of thing. That by itself, that comment is a kind of red flag that his wife is out there. He's allowing his wife to go out there and do these things that he'd rather she not be out there doing. And obviously he has anger issues about what she's out there doing. He's upset and he's abusive, fucking abusive. And if he's angry at her for doing these things, he's going to be angry at the women with whom she is doing these things. He's going to be angry with you too. And the more involved you get with her, the more exposure you're going to have to him. And is that a risk you're willing to run? And again, what are your moral obligations to this person? as a sex partner and a, and a friend. Well, I think you go to her and you say, we can't continue to see each other so long as you're in this marriage. Your husband is clearly abusive and, and I'm so shocked and worried and concerned for your safety, being with someone who would do such a thing to you. But I'm also concerned for my safety, I'm concerned for my husband's safety and the risk of being in relationship with your husband through you is not a risk I'm willing to assume. It's not a risk I can tolerate. And I would encourage you to get the fuck out yourself. And we're there for you. If you need help getting out of this relationship, if you need moral support, I can provide that. I would be happy to provide that. But if you're going to continue to be with this person, I can't be with you. And th that makes me feel terrible. I was excited about our relationship. I was actually excited to meet your partner. What would have happened if we hadn't followed you at a distance and been there to intervene after he picked you up and threw you into a pile of garbage? Not comfortable with somebody who can behave that way, knowing where I live, and that anger potentially being directed at me too. This is a really tough spot that you find yourself in. She's in a much tougher spot. This woman that you've been sleeping with, that you're attracted to, that you feel NRE about, she's in a much worse position you have to protect yourself, and you should encourage her to do the same thing. Hi, Dan. This is a 29-year-old bi female married to a straightish 29-year-old man. Um, we've been together for a really long time. We've been married since we were 18. We have a really great sex life, pretty fulfilling for both of us, and we're really open, and we communicate with each other about our wants and desires. And um, so I think we're doing great there. We have three small children. So there's been peaks and valleys and dry spells and all that stuff. But I feel like we're in a really great place right now. Um, but my question is regarding 
being accommodating for your partner, which we really try to do. And my husband has always expressed interest in anal sex. And finally, at this point in our marriage, I decided to be open to ass play, which I was surprised that I do enjoy. But he's he's extremely well endowed, both in girth and length. And that's why I never wanted to try because I found it to be extremely intimidating. So we tried a couple times and it was very painful. We we tried to do all the things that, you know, we had kind of picked up on being important. And I've listened to as many episodes as I can of your podcast. And it was still extremely painful, at least getting started. And then I think, you know, some clit action really helped. But as far as him actually thrusting, I feel nothing almost. It's the, it, It's so strange. So it's either pain or nothing. I like the feeling of being filled, but other than that, getting in there is really difficult. And then thrusting is super strange, if not at times painful. And we try to be good about the lube and he does a lot of work to make sure that I'm ready. And I don't know, what am I, What are we doing wrong? What can we change? Am I just one of those people who it's, it's not going to work for me? I, I don't feel like I'm ready to give up on that yet. First, I have to acknowledge you guys have been together, married since you were 18 and together longer. So that just goes to show that people should ignore everything that I have to say about everything because I'm always pointing out that no one is with, as an adult, the person that they were dating in high school. Well, you are the exception that either proves the rule or proves that no one should listen to me ever about anything. Congratulations on your long and successful marriage, marrying your high school sweetheart, three kids, a great active sex life that you both enjoy and you're both willing to try new things, including letting him put his giant fucking penis in your ass. So here's the thing. If it was painful, if when he began to thrust, there was not just no pleasure, you say you feel nothing, but once you know, you've gotten that big thing in there, you've used a lot of lube, you've done a lot of anal foreplay, and it sounds like he's really conscientious, not about just jamming it in there with the goal of fucking and it being all about his dick, but he's trying to make it as pleasurable for you or tolerable for you as possible. Once he's in and he's thrusting, you're not in pain anymore. It's just, you're not feeling a great deal of pleasure. You're not feeling any pleasure. You say you feel nothing. Well, he's really into anal. He wants to fuck your ass. If once he was in and he began to thrust, it was incredibly painful for you and unpleasant and traumatizing. I would encourage you to go to him and say, well, we tried, but that's not something that I can do. And so the price of admission that you'll have to pay to be with me is anal just isn't going to happen, at least not with your giant penis. Anal play, we can use toys, we can roll around, we can rim, we can finger, but your giant dick, yeah, no. But because once he's in and you've taken the time and you've used the lube and engaged in the foreplay, once he's in and it's just blah, it's just meh for you, but not painful or unpleasant or traumatizing, I think this can be a take it for the team kind of occasional, rare, not always on the menu, sex act where every once in a while he would like to do anal and you would like to give that to him, even though it's not going to provide you with a lot of pleasure. And then at other times, hopefully there is reciprocation, not of, you know, the specific sex act, but that kind of indulgence. Maybe there are times when you just want him to eat your pussy for 45 minutes and not be stroking his dick and not have it be about his dick and just have it all be about you and his tongue gets tired and his jaw gets tired because maybe you're sitting on his face and grinding, which can be uncomfortable. Somebody sits on your face and really gets a grind going because that's what they need to get off. 
that can really make your jaw sore. It's not the same as how sore your ass is going to be after somebody fucks you with their giant penis. But if you think about it, you may be able to identify in your sex life as currently constituted a few things he does for you where he's taken one for the team. Recognizing, of course, that there's more on the line and it's more physically taxing and stressful to get your ass fucked than to have your face sat upon. So maybe the getting your ass fucked is rarer. And in between the getting your asses fucked, in between the anal indulgences, you guys still do anal play. And you have some orgasms that aren't about getting his dick in your ass and then having an orgasm, but are about a vibrating butt plug or just external anal stimulation where you sit on his face and he eats your ass and you use your vibrator or you play with your clit or he plays with your clit or he uses the vibrator and your clit at the same time. And you have some shattering orgasms when your anus is also in play, engaged, but not being fucked. And maybe over time, that association between anal engagement and your own pleasure and your own orgasms will click in. And that sometimes happens for people. There are people out there who's, you know, this is a, an example from the, the other end of the body, whose tits aren't wired, that playing with their nipples does nothing for them. And then you play with their nipples, play with their nipples, and at a certain point, something clicks. And suddenly that starts really working for them. And I think, and call out there to researchers to do the research, to back me up on this, go get the science folks, Often it's because they're playing with your nipples and you're having orgasms and this association, this new neural pathway is carved that links those things in your erotic imagination, in your erotic mind. And that can happen with the butt too. So again, I am not telling anybody out there who doesn't enjoy anal, who finds it uncomfortable, painful, degrading in a non-sexy way that they owe their partners anal. I am not saying that. I am saying if this is something that you can do that provides your partner with pleasure, that doesn't cause you pain, that doesn't traumatize you, that doesn't leave you feeling degraded or devalued, that that's a loving thing to do, to do for your partner. And also, hopefully, if you have a GGG partner, you're, there is reciprocation. There are times when they do for you and they're not in pain and they're not feeling degraded, they're not feeling used, they're just doing the work of building your orgasm. And so there is reciprocity. There is give and take. There is I'm doing for you and you are doing for me. And in the final accounting, it is fair and it is just and it is loving and it is good and it is giving and it is game. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the caller from episode 619. What you missed in the very beginning of that call is that he hit on this woman while she was at work wanting her phone number while she's in her place of business, of course, she's going to be more inclined to be cordial and differential. Uh, and for him to ask for her number while she's working uh, pushes the boundaries and, again, makes women feel like there is no safe place for them to be in this world where they can't uh, say no. Uh, I think she did a great job of deflecting that. And uh, the caller really needs to take a close look at himself. If he's hitting on other women while they're in their place of business in customer service related fields, he needs to be less of a creep. Hey there, I'm just calling about episode 619, the most recent one, and the guy who was upset about his ego being damaged for being turned down publicly uh, from a woman. There's a really easy way around this, guys. You can just give a woman your phone number and say, hey, call me. Then she doesn't have to say, no, I don't want to right then. She can just call you later if she wants to. And if she doesn't, nobody loses anything. It's a really easy, no pressure way to say, hey, I'm interested. Take the first step. Put yourself out there. There's no public rejection. And then maybe you get a phone call later. If you don't, don't worry about it. Super easy. Just give a woman your number and then leave her alone. 
Hi, Dan. This is a response for the caller in episode 619 who lost her mom last year. My mom died five years ago when I was 20, and my dad has had several girlfriends since then. But before the girlfriends, he was alone in our house, had no friends or social contact, and drank a lot. It was heartbreaking to watch while my brother and I were away at college. I just wanted to reassure you, caller, that this new woman will never replace your mom. I'm sure if your dad could choose anyone in the world to be with, he'd pick your mom. My dad would, but they can't. I know it hurts right now, but watching your dad move forward hurts so much less than watching him waste away. You already lost your mom, and I'm so, so sorry, but don't willingly lose your dad too, and don't make him lose his kids. Appreciate this new connection he's found, and have this loss make you warm towards other people, not cold. You can do this. Also, fuck that guy who asked out the girl who was working in the clothing store. Fuck literally everything he said. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. You can also record a question on your phone and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Hump, my dirty little film festival, is going to be playing far and wide this week. We have shows in Minneapolis, Victoria, British Columbia, and Sacramento, and there are still tickets available for all shows. Head over to humpfilmfest.com backslash tour to get tickets. And all films for this year's brand new 2018 Hump Film Festival are due Friday, September 14th at 3 p.m. Pacific time. We will be pouring over all your homemade porn and finding the sexiest, kinkiest, and the funniest short films for audiences to enjoy in the 14th annual Hump Film Festival. You can get tickets for all new films premiering in Seattle, Portland, and Olympia in San Francisco this November at humpfilmfest.com right now. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Nick Cuneo on Twitter at Nick Cuneo. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.